Father, we just come before you and acknowledge you as Lord, as God of the universe and God of our lives. And I really pray that this morning you will be glorified um, by um, singing our voices, um, by John as he comes and opens your word, um, that you will be pleased by the service this morning. We won't be focused on ourselves, but focused on you. And I really pray for John as he opens up your word. Um, You'll speak through him, um, given the words to say and how to say it and deliver it. And for us as we listen, that you'll open our hearts to the message you have for us. And I pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, Tom. Morning. Um, our passage this morning is found in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you want to turn there, while we're turning there, I'll just quickly run over what we've been going through the last couple of weeks. Saul, as we know, has been rejected by God as king of Israel, and God has chosen another man, a young man named David, to be his candidate for the future king. And Saul is driven by fear and pride and jealousy and defiance of God's choice. And we see back in 1 Samuel 18, verse 29, that Saul's decided to be David's enemy continually for the rest of his life. Although David means him no harm and has done him no harm. So Saul begins a relentless pursuit of David. And um, I've just been reading the last few chapters. Um, I think we've skipped a couple. But Saul's descent into madness is just unmistakable. And it's, it's really scary. It's scary to see what can happen when the heart of man is so fixated on protecting its patch and standing up for what we think we want to grasp onto. As, um, as Micah, you told us about yesterday, um, last Sunday. So Saul's tried to murder David already more than 13 times. He's broken promises. You can see that in 1 Samuel 19, verse 6. He's, he's flown into a fit of rage and tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, for speaking up in defense of David. And in chapter 22, he's committed the unspeakable act of ordering the death of 85 priests and the entire town of Nob, men women, children, infants, even animals actually, wiped out. So Saul has gone absolutely bonkers, right? And if he's willing to do this to the highest ranking priests, just imagine what he's going to do to David and his men if he catches up to them, if he finds them. So our chapters, chapter 24, and let's read for context from verse 25 of the chapter right before. Chapter 23, verse 25. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Verse 26. Then David went, sorry, sorry. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. Chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Just pausing for a minute, David and Saul, Saul was that close from capturing David. He was encircling him to take him. And then in the providence of God at the last minute, he's called away to deal with his job of defending the nation against the nation's Israel, nation of Israel's enemies, right? And one of Saul's biggest jobs as king of Israel is to defend against the Philistines and the other enemies of the nation. And yet he seems to treat this crucial responsibility as a distraction. He seems to think that it's, 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 it's at best second place to his primary goal, his one goal, his every waking desire, the most pressing priority in his executive diary is this destruction of God's anointed future king. And obviously he's been told that David is going to replace him on the throne. So Saul ducks away to deal with his legitimate role of dealing with the enemies. But the relief and the rest for David and team is quite short-lived because in no time someone rats him out. His location is given up again to Saul and Saul returns to his illegitimate pet project. And then if you notice in verse 2 how many men Saul took with him. He took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel, the best of the best, the best fighters to go after Saul, to go after David, sorry. And this shows you how seriously Saul takes this hunt for David's life. It sort of gives you perhaps a glimpse into Saul's perspective as well. The last time Saul rounded up exactly 3,000 men is in chapter 13, verse 2. He's two years into his reign and he's on a military campaign against the Philistines. So for Saul to assemble that many men in his pursuit of David shows you that we can probably assume he's absolutely determined. He sees David as a huge threat and he is feeling that David deserves just as much attention to destroy as the Philistines. Of course, in the last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 13, we see that David has about 600 men. So the odds here are five to one, according to my mathematics. Verse 3 of our chapter 24. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. For Saul to be finally out of the way would be a solution to a lot of problems. It would be a shortcut for David to his throne. It would dramatically improve the lifestyle of these hunted people at the moment. They don't deserve the persecution that they're experiencing. So David's men and loyalty to David urge him to take this opportunity. But the problem is God had never said this to David about Saul. He hadn't said. He hadn't said what they told him. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know, but I'm guessing that they were thinking of God's words back in chapter four of the sorry, verse four of the chapter right before us. When David inquired of the Lord once again, chapter twenty-three, verse four, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So the Philistines were David's enemy. God had delivered the Philistines into David's hand. It seemed 
obvious to the guys that Saul was David's enemy. So perhaps they put two and two together and made 22. I don't know. It might have been an innocent conclusion. They might have had the best um, objectives here. However, at any rate, it was dangerous advice. And my first point is that um, we have to be aware of the advice of people. We have to be careful. Because even well-meaning people can give us advice that can put us completely wrong. We have to line up the advice of people against the Word of God. And the Word of God obviously comes first. So David knew that God's promise said, you will be king of Israel. He knew that Saul was in the way of that promise. But he knew, obviously, that it would be sinful for him to murder Saul. As a soldier, David was sanctioned to fight and use physical violence against the nation's enemies. But to murder the king of your nation is clearly wrong. God would not allow that. God had put Saul in the position of authority that he was in. It was up to God to deal to Saul in God's time. It wasn't up to David to take matters into his own hands. So David wanted the promise to be fulfilled, but he was not going to take the temptation to try and hurry things along by himself. You know, sometimes when we have a promise from God, we think we're justified in sinning to pursue that promise. And that's always wrong. God will keep his promises. God will fulfill his word, but he'll do it his way. He'll do it in his time and he'll do it righteously. How did David resist the natural human temptation in this moment? In this, He didn't have a lot of time to think this through. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity presented itself, obviously ordained by God, the timing. The, it was no coincidence that David and Saul ended up in the same cave at the same time in this way. It seemed like such an opportunity, but it was actually a test. It was a test of David's integrity. So how did he make the right decision? What David was going through right now was a really, really tough time in his life. He told his friend Jonathan in verse 3 of chapter 20, but I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. David was not feeling on top of the world, right? And if you read the Psalms, you'll see that he struggled often with depression, with sad feelings and bad feelings, just like many of us here. I love the Psalms because they're so relatable, and they also give us a glimpse, if you like, into David's personal diary and what he was going through, what he was feeling, what was affecting him at the time. And David wrote at least two Psalms about this time in the cave, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. And in Psalm 57, verse 1, he said, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. When David earlier left his mum and his dad with King Mizpah in Moab for safekeeping away from Saul's clutches, he said to the king, <clears throat> Please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. And in Psalm 57 verse 2, he says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. So in a minute, as we go through our chapter, we're going to see... David being strangely confident, which is at odds with the apparent situation that he's in. It, it seems 
it seems unnatural for him to be as confident and act in such integrity as he's been able to do. And that confidence is only found in God, who's on his side. His ability to show mercy to Saul in this moment is found in the fact that he's been shown so much mercy from God. So this mercy that we've received from God and that David received from God can be shown and shared with others. His good judgment in this moment comes from his awareness of God's righteousness, of God's omnipotence, all power, omnipresence. He's everywhere. Omniscience. He knows everything. So God knows everything. His fear is all-powerful. Therefore, he can be trusted to judge on David's behalf and judge righteously. David doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. In Psalm 142, verse 3, David records, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. So David has been freshly reminded of this reality, actually, and it's really good that he was. In chapter 23, the very last chapter, verse 14, David is in the mountains in the wilderness on the run from Saul as normal. We read in verse 14, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. David's in the forest. Verse 16. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. You got that wrong, by the way. Anyway, Even my father knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. You know, and the value of that moment is huge. We all need friends like that when we're at our lowest moment who come to us and strengthen our hand in God. In Luke 7, Jesus said that he who has been forgiven much loves much. David had experienced God's forgiveness in a real way. And later on in life, he's going to, get things not as right as he did in this chapter, and he's going to really need God's forgiveness, and God will come through for him and forgive him as he's promised. And so David, having experienced God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's love, aware of God's hand of protection, knew that he could show mercy to Saul. He could be loving to Saul because he was trusting in God. Psalm 142 verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Um, right, out of David's diary for a minute, and we'll go back to our chapter, verse 5, chapter 24, verse 5. Now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Wait a minute, what's the big deal here? Why is David conscience-stricken by this act? He had the opportunity to shank this guy in the back, and everyone would have been on his team. Why is he feeling bad about cutting a corner of Saul's robe? In this time of history, the hem of a ruler's garment is considered to be an extension of one's royal essence. In fact, it was widely held that a royally commissioned person's power or authority is contained or rests in the hem or in the corner of the garment. So symbolically what David has done is he has taken this kingly authority and dignity away from Saul in the symbolic act. 
So that's probably why David felt remorseful. He might have felt like he had trespassed on a divinely protected area that wasn't his to trespass on. He had taken something symbolically that was not his to do. And so he felt bad. His heart struck him. And I I find this tender conscience of David just really, really beautiful. So often it's easy for us, and I'm speaking for myself here, you know, it's easier for us to magnify the sins of others and to minimize our own sins. Like if you compare between David and Saul up until this point, it's pretty obvious to see who's at wrong. If you compare Saul's long list of big sins with what David's done in this moment. There's really no comparison. Saul's been trying to kill David, even though David's done nothing bad to him. He's murdered a whole lot of innocent people along the way. He's tied up Israel's army for his illegitimate persecution of David, and he's neglected his true responsibilities as king. He's forced these men out into the wilderness, away from their family, away from their wives. He's basically made their lives miserable. (laughs) And David's cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, can he just get a new one? <laughs> so David could have easily justified this small offense against Saul by putting it in the context of Saul's list of sins. But David was conscience-stricken. Verse 6, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my father, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. It's easy to miss what it would have felt like in this moment. You know, we know how the story ends. Um, We're looking backwards with hindsight, but just put yourself in David and his guys' position for a minute. Saul is a bad man. He's become a madman. David, um, <clears throat> David's a rightful future king. They're on the run. They're on the run for years, four years in total, actually. So you put yourself in the situation, you've got the seemingly once-in-a-lifetime opportunity presents itself to you. It wouldn't be that easy to pass it by. I would struggle to pass it by. I'm just being honest. I'd struggle to pass it by. Um, if David wanted to keep his hands clean, good on him, all powered him. But it would have been pretty easy at that moment to do a pilot, right? To wash your hands of the matter, step back and sort of let these 600 guys have their way, you know? Look, you know, could I really hold back 600 men? I mean, come on, guys, you know? The guy had it coming to him anyway. It would have been easy. A bit of pest control, right? But in verse 7, we read that David restrained his servants. If you've got an NIV, you'll perhaps read that David sharply rebuked his servants, which I understand is a, is a literal translation of what happened. David told off his servants and made it clear to them that they were not to harm Saul in any way. And let's unpack what he said to his servants. He said in verse 6, my master. Now look at this heart of humility. Obviously Saul's the incumbent king, but whether he deserves to be or is still up for the task is a completely different question. He's a loony tune. He's narcissistic, insecure, unhinged, corrupt, a murderer, indecent, unstable. He's utilizing his army for selfish and self-serving 
sinful purposes, and the whole country can surely see right through him. He's a really, really hard guy to respect. But Saul refers to David, sorry, David refers to Saul as his master and the Lord's anointed. So we know that Saul was anointed by God to be king, but God rejected Saul and chosen David as his future king. But David knows that Saul has been placed in that position by God. It's up to God to deal with this when it is his time. It's not up to David to take matters into his own hands. So I think there's benefit for us in recognizing that even imperfect people can be anointed by God in positions and responsibility and authority in our lives. Um, They might be neighbors. They might be members of the church. They might be workmates. They might be our boss. People might be irritating, imperfect, not very nice, but God can and God does use imperfect people in our lives for his purposes. Sometimes people are in a position of authority. You see in Romans 13 verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And in Ephesians 6 verse 5, servants are told to obey their masters. Just because someone's not a nice person doesn't mean that we get to disregard who they are to us. Verse 8, David also arose afterwards, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. This is a a risky move, a really risky (laughs) moment. And you can just probably imagine what David's men are thinking as David walks out of the cave. I mean, if all I had to do was keep quiet, the enemy was leaving, just knuckle down, let him be on his way, and then carry on. They've escaped again. If I was in that situation, I wouldn't be saying, I'm over here, mate. It's... It's just not how I'd approach it, but, but David did. And so at this moment, David is he's not relying on, on concealment or people or distance for protection. He's fully trusting his life into the hands of God, taking faith in God courageously. He approaches the king. And look at his attitude as he did so. Can we just pick this apart for a minute? Ooh. Point five. He called out to Saul, my lord, the king, referring to him with respect. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. This is an indefensible position, and it's a position that that makes a statement. It's showing homage, as was cultural when approaching your king. But in this context, David's humility is also really striking to me, because Technically, David could have sauntered up and approached Saul as an equal. They're both the Lord's anointed. When the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as king, he used a little flask of oil. It was a dab, a little splash of oil. When the prophet Samuel anointed David as king, he used a whole ram's horn full of oil. So David could have been like, hey, little anointed guy. (laughs) I'm the big anointed guy, you know. 
Like, okay, you're the incumbent right now. You're keeping the seat warm for me, but you're on your way out. I'm on my way in. You know, watch this space. But no, he approaches Saul with absolute respect and humility because I believe it's because he is not there to protect his name. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He is interested in someone else's glory. And you see this at the end of Psalm 57, which obviously he wrote about this event in the cave. The last verse, verse 11 of Psalm 57, he says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, in chapter 2, in Hannah's prayer, Hannah's Samuel's mom, obviously, she says in verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He lifts the poor from the dust and, lift, and raises the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. So it's up to God to lift us up if that's what he wants to do. It's not for us to strive for this. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Obviously, uh, we can contrast that pretty, pretty clearly to, to Saul's attitude over the last few chapters. Verse 9 of our chapter. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? <laughs> do you see what he's done here? This is, this is quite a gracious, tactful um, out he's offered Saul because the whole country knows that this idea of Saul hunting down David is Saul's idea it's no one else's idea but in this moment David gives Saul a way to maintain his dignity he instead of aiming his criticism at Saul like a stone between the eyes he shifts the pointedness of the blame to other bad advisors right so that Saul isn't directly rebuked Verse 10, look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch up my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, you see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. He called Saul his father. That's really endearing language. It's like, it's like he's appealing to Saul's better nature. Like, you know, you're my father-in-law. Um, you know, I married your daughter. I played the harp for you. Like, there's so much love between us. We go to the feast together and stuff. You know, I've never caused you any harm. When David held up that corner of Saul's robe, that would have just been that would have struck, the significance of that moment would have struck Saul. I'm sure his memory would have gone back to chapter 15 and verse 27 when Samuel, the prophet Samuel, was turning to leave Saul after rebuking him strongly for disobeying God. And Saul reached out to hold Samuel back and the robe of Samuel tore. And then Samuel said to him in verse 28 of chapter 15, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. 
And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind. For he is not a human that he should change his mind. So I'm sure the symbolism of this moment now with David standing in front of him with the corner of his robe would not have been lost on Saul. Verse 12, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Although David was tactful and respectful to the king, it's clear, he makes it completely clear that he's calling on God to be the judge between them. He's not going to take revenge on Saul. That's not his job. But God will judge. And David's not at all passive about it either. He's not like, oh, well, we'll just see what happens, you know. It's not what he says. He wants God to get involved and rightfully take his side. And he makes that clear to Saul in verse 15. Verse 12, sorry. This speech from David was, was powerful and persuasive. And to be honest, I wouldn't really expect anything less from David. He's a poet. He's a psalm writer. Remember when he was first introduced to King Saul back in chapter 16, verse 18. He was introduced as someone who was prudent of speech. So he doesn't disappoint here. But if you now look at Saul's speech, it's the exact opposite. Verse 16, he's a blubbering mess, right? Let's read verse 16. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. <laughs> um, I, I believe that crying is a good and healthy thing to do when you need to. When God... <laughs> yeah, keep those tear ducts flush, bro. When God convicts someone of their sins and breaks through someone's haze of stupidity and touches their heart and brings them to their senses. It's just, it's a precious moment of opportunity. When someone's heart is broken in that way, it's just amazing when repentance can come and there can be a beginning of a process of restored relationship. But sadly, that is not what's happening here. These tears and this repentance from Saul is worldly, fleshly, and temporary. It's just a way of him to you know, excuse himself from the moment, perhaps save face. Just like in chapter 15 when, when Saul was confronted by Samuel and he cried in that moment too. But he didn't have a priority of restoring his relationship with God. He was worried about Samuel leaving and making him look silly in front of his men. And in this moment, Saul's not trying to restore his relationship with David. He's more worried about some other things. It's a real... Shame and a real waste because it could have ended so differently. You know, Saul could have been genuine in this moment, but he wasn't. But there's an interesting confession from Saul in verse 20. Saul admits what he's known for so long. Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Jonathan told David that his father knew that. But as far as I know, this is the first time in, in, the, in, the, in the Scripture, it's the first time it's recorded that this has actually come from the lips of Saul, that David will be the future king, and not only will be the king, but he'll be a good king. You know, The kingdom of Israel will flourish in your hand. Let's just read what he said, verse 17. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, 
For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now I know indeed you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Now therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name <laughs> from my father's house. So, so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up into the stronghold. It's not a happily ever after ending yet, guys. It could have been, but it isn't. You know, David and his men, if they'd been able to restore you know, return with Saul, have their positions restored in the kingdom, you know, back to their families. You know, it could have been different, but it wasn't possible. Why is that? David knew Saul's heart. He knew he couldn't trust him. It was going to be only not very long at all before Saul is right back to his old tricks. In the end of John chapter 2, we read, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus did not trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. It's important for us to be aware of what's in people's hearts. You know, even when we, you know, we're told to love our enemies, but we're not told to be stupid. And I think it's important for us to be discerning, even when we're loving our enemies. I hope that you're enjoying this series in Samuel as much as I am. You know, I'm, I'm wrestling with uh, what it means to be a man after God's own heart or a person who seeks after God's own heart. And as this story unfolds, as we, as we go through David's life, it's becoming clear that what David's experiencing is not a series of coincidental random events, but that God is working out his purpose in David's life. So often we think, you know, I can think that if, if, if I don't stand up for myself, then no one will. But that's not for me to do. We should entrust ourselves to God. God is the judge of the world. God is the judge of our lives. And David got that right in this, in this story, in this moment. He wouldn't always get things right. Um, David um, failed in many ways. And yet someone who's greater than David was to come. You know, David in that moment, he held back from doing a bad thing to Saul, which is wonderful. You know, it's fantastic. He wouldn't always get it right. But if you think about Jesus, what Jesus had done for us, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he, not just, he didn't just not give us what we deserve. He gave us what we could never deserve, what we could never earn. You know, Jesus is so much greater than David. But you know, I just wonder how many conflicts would be resolved today in the world, in the church, if, if we were willing to put aside our pride and you know, instead of being fixated on the sins of other people, be aware of the sin in ourselves and then humbly approach the other party seeking truth and restoration. We have been shown so much mercy by God. You know, we can share that mercy with others. 
David in our passage today was prepared to wait for God's time and was willing to rest in God's providence. Are we? Is that what we do when people irritate us, frustrate us, seek to hurt us? Do we want to cut corners and take things into our own hands? Do we say, I'm bigger than this, I'm better than this? Or in the words of Jesus, do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let God take care of all these other things? We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. The Lord Jesus is our example. Let's follow in his footsteps. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you that your hand was on David, helping him to make good decisions. And we thank you that your hand is on our lives as well. And we're aware, Lord God, that David didn't always get it right. And he needed your forgiveness and your mercy. And Father God, we're just the same. We thank you that we can find mercy with you, Lord God. We just pray that we'll commit our lives to you, we'll commit our decisions to you, that we'll trust in you. May we be so aware of your mercy and your love, and may we be able to extend that to others. And may we rest in your time. In Jesus' name, amen.